when you're thinking about things or if you're observing the world, what people are wearing and what that communicates or the influence that has in your environment around you is part of the story, whether it's with race or really with anything, it it's part of the story. Um, and I, as an artist, I have an eye towards design and aesthetics and just how the environment looks and how that creates a feel. And so that, that's kind of a little bit of my trajectory, my big picture. So when you're talking with Marcel and when you talk with some others, uh, you weren't shy about talking about race. You acknowledged it. It's not, doesn't have to be the point of everything, but it's there and really doing cool stuff with clothing. And so you kind of hit both of those. And I don't find a lot of places that hit both of those. I'm Reg Ferguson and I'm a fashion consultant from New York city, born and raised. I've been helping men look fly for years. And now I want to help you learn more about menswear, the entrepreneurs, the brands, and top fashion tips on the Fashion Geek Podcast. I've never really been into blogs, especially ones about men's fashion. It's not that I don't think they're not valuable, but I think because of my life rearing, training, experience, and expertise, they don't hold overwhelming value to me. And it's not because I don't value an opinion. (laughs) Heck, doing a podcast certainly means I have an opinion. What's funny is I'm getting ready to finally start a YouTube channel. Look for it. And I'm this close to start doing show notes and transcripts for the episodes about time. And those things are close to a blog, but they're not a blog. So what is it like to do a menswear? Yo, this is Reg Ferguson, fashion geek number one. How are you? Welcome to the ride. Thank you so much for listening. I'm a men's fashion consultant here in New York City, and I help fashion challenge men go from confused to confident. If you ever found yourself staring at the closet, not knowing what to wear, or if the idea of shopping for clothes makes you feel physically ill, (laughs) then this is the show for you. My goal with every episode is to help make looking good feel easy. If you ever want my help, email me at reg at nyfashiongeek.com for a consultation. If you have a friend who's looking to level up his fashion style wardrobe game, please share an episode with them. While you're at it, if you dig the show and haven't already left us a rating and review, please consider doing so now. Your shares, ratings, and reviews Help us grow the show and help us get the, the best possible guest <laughs> and help more men dress their best. Today, we're going to talk with Dallin Montgomery of Bro Hamas, who is in Los Angeles, Orange County, the OC. Remember that back in the day on Fox? And we're going to talk about something that the everyday man should have an interest in. We're going to talk about blogs especially ones that are about men and men's fashion. Mr. Montgomery in the building. How are you? I'm doing good, Reg. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm hanging in there. You good, keeping safe good. out there? I'm, I'm working on it. I don't think there's any impending doom outside my window, but I feel good. Well, that's good. So before we get into our topic, please tell us. So what do you do?
So what do you do? What do I do? That's a harder question for me to answer than it should be. Um, I am a artist, an artist, uh, a writer, and a researcher who makes his living as a university administrator. How about that? <laughs> right now, you sound like Bruce Wayne. Well, I, I wouldn't. If only I had that kind of budget. Uh, I I would, so I would say essentially I'm, I'm a curious person who likes to find answers to questions, uh, aspiring Renaissance man, but a little bit more like if I could, by the time I have a fully gray beard, be the most interesting man in the world, or at least in that same sort of category, I would be a happy guy. That's all. I don't need fame and fortune. I just need some good stories. Okay. Well, it seems like you have a potpourri of them because you have this blog, as I mentioned, it's called Brohamas. I like that flow. You've told <laughs> me that it means nothing. It, it, it essentially means nothing. If you've ever seen, uh, it's been around longer than that commercial, but if you've seen, I think they're old Geico commercials with those bros talking about Brotato Chip and Brohamenstein. It was, it was just that kind of thing. I'm back in the day, I had a friend that, uh, called me Brohamus once just as part of a, a bro, and uh, it didn't really stick. But when I decided to come up with a moniker, threw it on there. Something that nobody else had and would make people, what the heck is that? And if they're asking me a question about it, that means we're talking, and that's that's the goal. That's the start. Right. You've made the connection. I yep. don't even remember those Geico commercials. Oh, you're missing out. They were kind of funny. I know. I'm sure. I, it's very faint. Very faint. <laughs> And somewhat unimportant. <laughs> well, it became important to you because this is the name of... Well, I didn't get it from there, but when I saw that, I'm all, oh, hey, these uh, these marketing people are apparently my people. You did a riff. And they did a riff, yep. So it's funny that we're talking about this because, fingers crossed, rumor has it that I am going to be interviewed on said blog. You will be featured shortly. Like uh, we we've had some good conversations. Um, as part of what I do over there is, I generally say I do whatever I want, which is uh, pursue things that I'm curious about. And I've been listening to you for a while, and I was curious, so I reached out and we we chatted. I uh, found some interesting things to say, and so I'll be sharing that shortly. Well, I'm really flattered that you sought me out. It's great that the podcast brought us together. And you were very kind. And I want to share with the audience. You let me see a rough draft of what you plan to post. And it really touched me. You're very observant. We talked at length. I like that because I felt like, okay, this is prepping me for when GQ reaches out to me. <laughs> we, we, Because I, I, I'm absolutely that level. That's true. Well, it's hey, all going to be downhill from here. I mean, GQ is going to be there. You're going to be like, oh, I've already done this. This is old hat. You are in the menswear space, so to be interviewed, I don't care who interviews me, is flattering. You, you, sought, you sought me out. The podcast brought us together. If I recall correctly, the Ten of Pentacles episode yep. was kind of how we made the connection. Marcel Ames down in Richmond. Does great stuff. He does. That's why, uh, that's why he was on the pod. So I usually never do this, but I'm going to do it. 
I'm gonna put you on the spot. All right. What was it? What was it about that episode or the podcast overall, which led you to search for me and reach me and reach out to me? Um. So, so I'll be super frank and open because I, I try to be that as a general rule. And, and I'm going to give you a longer answer than you might be bargaining for. That's fine. You got um, what, what I actually started with the blog and it drifted into to menswear, uh, but it was dealing with race and racial issues in the United States. So I uh, had a period in my life where I I'm, grew up in Sandy, Utah, which is the suburbs of Salt Lake a super white place, um, super homogenous. And then I uh, went and lived for two years in Southwest Atlanta in the mid nineties, which is not just Atlanta, but that was a super Afrocentric time. And uh, I, I just learned some stuff. I learned that the world didn't work the way that I was taught that it was for everyone. And I observed some things. And so since that time, I really start to question what I, my understanding of racial dynamics and how, like I said, the world operates. And the blog started because I started writing about the things that I was observing, thinking, and learning and researching. And I needed some way to complete those ideas and to communicate those ideas for feedback and to try and do something. Now, as part how that drifts into menswear is when you're thinking about things or if you're observing the world, what people are wearing and what that communicates or the influence that has in your environment around you is part of the story. Whether it's with race or really with anything, it, it's part of the story. Um, and I, as an artist, I have an eye towards design and aesthetics and just how the environment looks and how that creates a feel. And so that, that's kind of a little bit of my trajectory, my big picture. So when you're talking with Marcel and when you talk with some others, uh, you weren't shy about talking about race. You acknowledged it. It's not, doesn't have to be the point of everything, but it's there and really doing cool stuff with clothing. And so you kind of hit both of those. And I don't find a lot of places that hit both of those. Wow. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. I, I've never given it any thought. <laughs> so yeah. it's great to have an outside perspective. And that's why reading the rough draft, which you were so kind to show me, because I didn't even ask. I figure it's kind of like for me, like with the pod, hey, it is what it is. You'll uh, you'll hear about it when we uh, release it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that standard for any kind of interviewer for press is you don't get right of review, but uh, I'm not looking to make money off of this. I'm also not looking to to, to ping anybody, right? If uh, th there's no value in me saying negative things, unless it's going to make things better. And I don't think I'm influential enough to make things better. So let's just stick with things that help, right? That are good, that are positive. Sure. I also don't think I had anything worth pinging. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. That, I, I was looking for some mud to sling, and it was just too clean. I, Teflon, I baby. I found none. Nothing to do. Oh, yeah, well. I live a clean life. <laughs> it's nothing wrong with that. Oh, no, I'm proud of it. <laughs> right on. So you mentioned that you're an artist. Rumor has it that you often do portraiture of your interview subjects. If you're not, not no, that's part of what I do. Like, so I, I've always drawn uh, – 
started painting and doing a lot of digital work now. So, and I, I just like with my writing and my researching, I just generally stick with things that I like or I find interesting. And usually it, that's, that's part of my story. If I'm going to do a story on somebody or looking into it, I'm going to also do a little bit of a sketch. It's part of my exploration. So well, we, we, we got something in the can, something ready for you. <laughs> I hope you got my good side. Is there another one? No, actually not. I, I set you up for that one. You're welcome. Oh, uh, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. I probably would have gotten it out anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're, we're aligned. <laughs> Speaking about your artwork, when I was looking at your blog site, I noticed, and you, you've you actually led this. I mean, this is the beauty of America. So someone who doesn't look like me started the conversation about race, and now I'm following it. Sure. You have very interesting drawings of African-American men representing classic white brands, whether they're American or in the case of the one I'm about to mention, Harris Tweed, European. What led you to do that? So funny you you brought up that Harris Tweed one, um, which you can find at the Brahamas blog on the painting section. Do you know who that is in the Harris Tweed picture? No, I don't. I thought it was just a nice looking guy. So uh, that's Peter Tosh. Get out. Yeah. So I, I was using a reference of Peter Tosh. There's a, a, a plenty of photographic evidence of him doing all sorts of things. So I was kind of playing with uh, what you see and people's impression of what you see. Uh, something to look cool. Something in the menswear world. But that if you learn a little bit more about it, see if the, if the meaning changes and if you look at it the same way. So part of the reason why I chose Peter Tosh is one, I mean, he looks good. He's a cool looking guy. Harris Tweed is probably the most English stuffy. Um, and and I, I say this with some appreciation. It is a classic brand, but it also probably represents uh, colonial power more than many other brands would. Right. So it's not just English or it is kind of the uh, the stuffy version of it. And so to put Peter Tosh in there, we, we could have a discussion on which direction we might be. Well, I'm not selling it, so I'm not really exploiting anything in there. But to show a representation of an anti-colonialist, either owning that and making it look good or thinking, can you look at this knowing who he is in the same way you did before? So it's just something that when you first see it, hey, it looks cool, but there's more going on than meets the eye. And I find that's generally true with most of life in reality, right? There's more going on than what we look at. Uh, and I think it's all right for things to just look good on the surface. Like it can be shallow. Like, all right, that looks good. But you always got to know that there is another layer, no matter who or what it is. Well, this leads to a wonderful segue because... You have a blog post in which you did some research, correct me if I'm wrong, at the University of Pennsylvania for a football piece. And you stumbled on a whole bunch of football programs and you had highlighted advertisement. And the advertisement of that era, not that it's any different now, was very aspirational. But the characters in said ads looked like you and they didn't look like me. 
A- absolutely. So, oh, we can go all kinds of places on this. So you're, I, I've done a little bit of research. So I, I love football. It's one of the things that I just dive into. And uh, what you're, the first one you're looking at, I was visiting Princeton. Oh, it was Princeton. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. And I, I was taking the tour. And as the tour left one of the buildings, uh, actually Nassau Hall, their main building, I kind of lingered because it was mostly a student tour and I wasn't there because I had a kid. I was there because I, uh, it's Princeton. Let's check it out. There's all these institutions that predate the American government that are still thriving. And I, I, I find that fascinating. And there was somebody that worked there that kind of saw me lingering. He's like, so what you doing? I'm all, I'm just checking stuff out. He's like, what you interested in? I'm all like, I don't know, old stuff. And he gave me his card. He goes, all right, so two buildings over is the uh, archives. So let him know that I sent you and ask him for whatever you want. Well, for reals? Like, you can do that? He goes, yeah, you can do that. Here, just go. So as I'm walking over there, I'm going like, oh, what do I want? What do I ask the Princeton archives for? Uh, And in true Brahamas fashion, when I walked in, I just said, like, hey, give me every pro foot or every, not pro, every football program you have from the beginning until 1930. And I, I, I went with football at Princeton mostly because Princeton, Princeton versus Rutgers was the first American football game ever played. So uh, this, this is history. This is a place. Let's go. So when you, when they wheel out these boxes of programs and let me touch them and look at them, they, they really represented this, era and this transition in not just football and college, um, but, but illustration. So you're moving from just paint illustrations to uh, engraved plates, right, over into photography and watching how that transitions. And the Ivy, not just Ivy League, but colleges or university at this time period were purely aspirational. Like, so college was never really initially conceptualized to really just educate people or like teach you engineering and math. They were to socialize the landed gentry. So it's a place for the sons of rich white people to go meet each other and hang out. I mean, that that's the, that's what American college is built on. And so, but that's where you get all these like Landecker illustrations, the arrow collar ads. You put the, these are the people that have money. These are the people that are, setting the trends for the masses, right? This is who you're looking up to. These are those families. These are those people at that time and era, the 1920s. So they're just beautiful illustrations, great style, looking good. But this is also a time where this is all white people. This isn't just segregation. This is the the nadir, right? So this is post-Reconstruction, pre-what we think of as a civil rights movement, although there was this long era. But college was still white and college was still male. Uh, so we, when you bring what that looks like, one of my favorite of my own illustrations, um, if you move forward, I also have a, a – you're familiar with the book Take Ivy? Yes, vaguely. I mean, I don't own it, but I've seen it. Okay. So uh, in, in the menswear world, when blogging first take off, like kind of menswear blogging first really became a thing, uh, Take Ivy was this – book that the guys in Japan came over to the Ivy League schools and took a bunch of photographs and did a little bit of write-ups, but it was mostly about the style and the imagery and took it back to Japan. So there's a time period in the early 2000s when sort of classic menswear was making a little bit of a comeback 
this book was kind of an underground uh, image board, inspiration board for all these New York fashion people. And this guy, uh, John Tinseth at the Trog the Bla- uh, blog, The Trad, my speaking there, uh, he had a copy of this and he knew it. So he scanned the book and posted it all for free. And it kind of upset a bunch of people in the fashion world, but it exploded. It exploded to the point where it's translated to English, uh, reprinted. You could got to the point where you could buy it at Urban Outfitters, right? So it's all of these uh, preppy slash Ivy kids from the 60s on these campuses and looking at wearing the same stuff now. Now, as you flip through those pages, a bunch of these schools had actually integrated by that point, but you could only see one black person in there. Um, so I did an illustration where I went through archives in the same time period and found a picture of two male Yale cheerleaders at a Dartmouth football game in the same time period where they're taking pictures at Take Ivy. Um, and at the national anthem, they were doing a, a black power salute. Right. The both of them, if you yeah, think back sure. to the Olympics. Right. So it yeah. says so the illustration says take Ivy and then it has two Yale cheerleaders. And when we say Yale cheerleaders, um, like we're talking about a classic Yale pullover uh, crew neck sweater with a white collared shirt underneath cream or white pants. Right. So it's this clean Ivy look, but a, a black power salute. So I call that one like take Ivy by any means necessary. So it's just showing like, look, there were people here there at the same time period that are rocking the same look that just aren't getting represented. And so I represented them. Well, that's, that's slick and that's smooth. And you're absolutely correct. I remember the episode I did with Caustic Man. When we were talking about what we are talking about now, Ivy Trad Prep, this was an American uniform. It was highlighted by people who looked like you, but that's what Americans wore. So regardless of social status. No, no, absolutely. And it was, it was a look and you can't tell an American, the American story that has been mainstreamed, if you want to call it mainstream, is that waspy Eurocentric thing when my family, uh, families have been, or people have been coming from Africa as long as mine came from Scotland and Ireland, um, but the journey hasn't been the same. So over that time period of proximity, of being in the same time and place and the same sort of merchandising, the same sort of manufacturers living in each other's space, there's all these really rich, parallels and diversions in those same worlds that can be explored and shared. And I mean, we should, we should pay more attention to. So yourself from looking at your blog, it seems like you have a constant path of struggle. Satorally, would that be correct? (laughs) I'm going to say yes. Well, I'm curious how much of a, a dig the struggle is, but yes. No, no, no dig. Just, <laughs> just, a, just a mere observation. I mean, I, you see, see me do. walking down the street, go that guy's struggling a little bit. I re, hey, I, <laughs> I, I'm a fashion consultant. Number one, number two. As you say, I see I what you're research. trying to do there, but I re, I research. Hey, you, <laughs> this blog is for public consumption. 
I I have no archives outside of what I, what you I, have posted. I am what I am, and I'm not afraid of it. And that's fine. You and sometimes you I'm ashamed of it, but I'm not afraid of it. <laughs> so my point is, as we talk about the triumvirate Ivy <laughs> Ivy Tread Prep, you had two opportunities going into one of the hallowed clothing cathedrals of that arena, J Press. Absolutely. And your experiences were alpha and omega. Would you care to elaborate? Yeah, well, I've had more than more than those two because I go everywhere, um, but I wrote about those. So, so as an outsider, like I consider myself an outsider, meaning I, I, I come from the West, not from the Northeast, if we're talking about those, that triumvirate. I don't come from a moneyed class. I did not attend prep school. All of these sorts of things. And then as an that adult. Like a dig. What's that? So that sounded like a dig. You know, I went to prep school. No, no, no. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm an outsider, right? So my my understanding of what preppy was was saved by the bell because that's what uh, – Oh wow! Right when they when they called him when they called that was Zach was that his name yeah, yeah Zach Ca- called him prep like called him preppy like they weren't at a prep school but like he wore button downs right, as opposed style. to the tank tops of uh, AC Slater. Well, it's kind of like I guess I guess I'm more preppy right, but it wasn't connected to prep schools. We didn't really have those. I go back he's go oh there's a thing right. You find out oh this thing comes from a thing. I get it now, but you don't get it when you're younger all the time. Sure. But anyway, so as an outsider, but somebody who I, I care about design, I care about look, and I'm curious. Uh, I had one where I walked into, I believe it was the J Press uh, in Cambridge. And, man, I tell you what, it just felt so gatekeepy. When I call that, where, where the people that worked there, they weren't serving as much or servicing uh, as much as, like, sizing me up and deciding if I was worth their time. Now, granted, they just might be good at their job and saw me and thought that guy's not buying anything because I, I did not intend to buy anything. Uh, I just wanted to look and learn and see, and they were doing their job and they weren't really concerned with what I was looking at or concerned <laughs> with my learning. Folding um, sweaters. We're just folding sweaters here. Do not even folding sweaters. It's like, I'm going to sit in the corner and I'm going to look at you and, uh, <laughs> It's going to be awkward. I'm a lot older than you, and I definitely am not smiling. Um, and, and, you know, when you walk into a space and those people that run the space are looking at you with suspicion or just not welcoming, I mean, you're on the back foot right away. So, like, I, I got a lot less curious real fast. Like, I'm mm-hmm. looking at this wall of stuff, like uh, all these tweeds. I'm, I'm looking at regimental stripe uh, scarves. And ties. And, and I'm fascinated with regimental stripes because the idea that you can have design with meaning. Um, and, and, I, and that does mean something to me. Like, I, I don't like to wear a club tie of a club I don't have any connection with or something that has representation. If you're going to put that on, you, you should know what you're putting on. Right. Uh, I wanted to ask questions, but I, it just didn't feel cool in the moment. So, so, so I bounced and I just left there feeling less curious and a lot more of an outsider, right? So the, the gate was kept safe from the likes of me uh, compared <laughs> to, all right, right. I, I was 
unsuccessful at storming those gates. No infiltration. Uh, then went to the J Press in D.C. It wasn't the same trip. And I don't know if it's D.C. as a geography or just the individual that was there at the time. And it was such a different story when I walked in. It was like, hey, can I help you? And I went, well, I'm not really buying stuff. I'm just kind of curious. Look, and the guy was like, I love it. What, what, what did you want to look at? What, what makes you curious about J Press? Right. This was a different rather than and I, I don't know these people's trajectory. So it could be somebody like maybe the Cambridge guy was a little bit more legit, came from that place. It's just who he is. It's not his interest. The the man in D.C., it was his interest. Like he wanted to talk about clothes. He wanted to talk about J. Press. He wanted to talk about this. He was willing to share. He was willing to give me answers and have conversations, if not entree. Right? So he... It just went to show me that there, there can be things that we're interested in, but whoever is the host or whoever it is that possesses any kind of power or knowledge, that the, the burden is kind of on that person if they want to share or if they want to give access. It's really hard for people who really want to know and people who might appreciate uh, to have to force their way into that sort of knowledge. That's, that's a tough thing to do. And if you want to keep it alive, if that is a desire or if you want it to grow, it would be great to share. If you don't want it to grow, then uh, go ahead and try and watch the gates. Every month when something important is going on, I send out my New York Fashion Geek newsletter to my fellow geeks. It drops on Fridays and it offers a quick glimpse into the world of the fashion geek. I offer some tips and it's a nice breezy read to sign up. Just head over to nyfashiongeek.com and fill out the welcome sheet. So just to review, how did you feel when you left Cambridge? And how did you feel when you left D.C.? When I left Cambridge, I felt awkward, judged, outside, ignorant, and a little bit of frustrated. Like, I, I, I know that I have worth. I felt like that man didn't believe it when it was not worth his time. Like I was not worthy of his world. So I felt is if dist is the right world, but I've word, I felt like an outsider and a little bit low when I left the one in DC. Uh, I felt great. I didn't feel like any more of a, like an insider, but I felt like I knew something. I felt like I had learned and I appreciate, I felt like my appreciation for what goes on in a place like J press had grown. Have you ever made a purchase out of any J Press store in your life? I have. I uh, I bought a hat. Um, I'm trying to think if I bought a tie. No, and I bought bootleg cufflinks instead of their cufflinks. Um, I bought a hat at J Press in um, New Haven. Oh. It was great. Hats are hard for me to find because I have a gigantic head and I'm picky. I might struggle sartorially, but part of my struggle is I know what I like and I know what I don't like. And I do know some stuff and I generally can't afford what I know I like and want. And everything came together with this hat at J press. So uh, I did make a purchase. What type of hat is it? Um, by now it's old and beat up. It was, uh, Oh, I'm trying to think of what the name was. Cause it's not just a straight Panama hat. Uh, Cause the brim turned up all the way around. So you're talking about like a three and a half inch brim straw hat. Uh, it was white with a black band. 
And so with me, part of the challenge is finding a crown that uh, caves in around your head enough that it doesn't look like a 10 gallon hat and a brim that's not big, but not too small. If it's too small, my head looks even bigger, but if it's too wide, then it's a cowboy hat and I am not a cowboy. So <laughs> it's one of my early lessons in life is that you young men are not a cowboy. I learned that in Wyoming. Well, that's uh, that's good. It's, it's, important <laughs> to know, it's important to know thyself. It, uh, yes. And the next step is to amuse thyself. <laughs> I have a feeling you do that already. It's, I've got to be amused by somebody. So correct me if I'm wrong. Before you moved to SoCal, you were in Philly. Is that correct? Yes, sir. So I need to revisit my faux pas from earlier. You were in the home of UPenn, University of Pennsylvania. Yep. So I am now a proud Quaker alumni. Oh, wow. Okay. You're the real deal. Well, I'm a deal at least. <laughs> so why don't you share with the audience your experience sectorally being at UPenn and also being at Philadelphia, which way back when considered itself a fashion capital, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> so 19th century. Well, so 19th century. As a New so, Yorker. So, no, of course, you got to get your digs in on Philly if you're I'm in New York. I'm just saying what it is. No, hey, it, it's one, one of the rules. In the city. I've been there a few times. It's cute. <laughs> it's okay. I like the pretzels. But, <laughs> Only yeah. a New Yorker would call Philly cute because you're playing. So, when That's it, all right. So, so I, I will digress a little bit. Digress a little bit. I love Philly. Like Philly has my heart. I've never lived anywhere, and I've lived a lot of places that felt as much at home. Like I belonged in Philly. Um, now, whether Philly felt the same way is it really kind of doesn't matter because Philly is going to fight everybody. Like you can be from there or not from there. The, the city itself is still going to fight you. But anyway, um, I give the best Rocky tour in the world. Right, all the original, all the original filming locations, and at the time, at, at the time I was boxing out of a gym that actually that this is before the Creed reboot series came out. But the the gym, my home gym, I was boxing out of is in Creed. It's the Front Street Boxing Club, so I could get access to just the most Philly of Philly places. But part of the appeal of that of that tour is the, the original Rocky movie came out in 1976. You go to those same neighborhoods. Now they look worse now. So when you say it used to be a fashion capital, mm. the places that were featured in a movie in 1976, cause they look run down and beat up, look even worse today. So that that's kind of the story of Philadelphia, but then you can go to center city. You can go to Penn, you can go to Rittenhouse square. You can go to Boyd's. You can go to all sorts yeah, of other I've been, places. I've been, uh, I've been past Boyd's, took some photos, didn't go in. Oh, I, but th there is still the legacy of greatness. There is still new greatness coming up and happening, right? There are like such a vibrant community of people doing cool stuff like Sabir, uh, men's style pro great guy coming out of there. Uh, Great stuff. Anyway, so so being there in the heart of Penn, um, I even wrote about this a little bit. I had I got accepted to grad school, 
and I was quitting my job, right? So it's a crazy thing to quit your job when you have two children and your wife is a stay-at-home mom, so you're the breadwinner and you're going to go to a crazy expensive school. But there's some places that if they let you in, you go. That's just how it goes. And, and it's something I had to do for my life. Uh, but I knew that this is – I was out of my league in a bunch of different ways. Uh so one of the things I did is I reached out to some friends. I knew the people at Bonobos and one of the founders of Bonobos had left Bonobos and had started Trunk Club. And so I uh, talked to my friend at the Trunk Club, which at the time was a group where they were like boxes of clothing every month for men who didn't like to shop. Yeah. Uh, and these guys were out of uh, the, the guy I was reaching out to. He went to Princeton undergrad, Stanford for business school. He knew the world. Right, he he knew what was up. So I said, "Hey, what can you do? What can you put together for me as a uh, Ivy League starter pack?" Uh, <laughs> but 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 not in 1965. So he's like, "All right, I'll hook you up." So he sent me this box of stuff. He was all like, "Where? Here, here's what I should do." And I went through and like we picked and mixed and matched some of the stuff I didn't keep. Like there was a, a club shirt, is what I'd call it. So it was a gray, shiny, patterned um, button-up. It's kind of like, you know what? I'm really not a uh, glossy, textured shirt kind of guy. I saw that shirt on your blog. Yeah. And also, I am like objects in the mirror closer than they appear. I am generally larger than I appear. It did not do good for my love handles. So, uh, and he agreed. He goes, all right, don't do that one. He also sent me a black watch plaid uh, jacket. And Plaid, in my mind, and where I was from, just registered 1975 old person. Mm. Um, and I'm kind of like, and I, I know bagpipes, so I know Black Watch, and I am not a piper, and I'm not English military, so I'm, I'm not sure about this. And that's where uh, he kind of put his foot down. He's like, nah, you got to keep that jacket, man. Trust me, you're going to love that jacket. To this day, I love that jacket. Black Watch is dope. I mean, I've liked Black Watch since I was junior high school oh absolutely man i mean it's a it is one of those patterns with meaning that has crossed over to it is generally accepted that anybody can wear it right so you're not gonna come off as a clown so as a rugby player every now and then if somebody's wearing a certain certain rugby shirts you're like oh you play and they're and they've never played a rugby game and a little bit like oh you've you've disappointed me. oh that you, sounds you, like a rolling that sounds like a rolling blazers conversation uh, we we could get to rowing blazers. I, I like a lot of the stuff rowing blazers is doing. They 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 break down some of those. But anyway, um, but but Penn Penn in Philadelphia was a great experience, especially when so much of the way I operate is a little bit of a street ethnography, right? So it's very much an observing the world around you, observing the interactions of how people look and how they play, and spending time on an Ivy league campus, it's a little bit, not just an outsider, but as a grad student, you're a little bit older, right? So you can spend time on there and you're, you're not a focal point, right? You can be easily ignored as an adult on a college campus. Yep. And, and that allows you to observe a little bit differently. And it was just fascinating. And I got to see and learn and understand people and classes of people and groups of people and just modes of dress and modes of operation that were, that were new to me and that I've 
have some access to, right? As an alum and as somebody who's been to those kind of schools, I can own some of that. Um, but I'm still who I am. It was a, it was a great learning time. It was really exciting, really fun. So a lot of pictures of what people are wearing. Uh, I did in fact see Madras patchwork pants in the wild. I think all the like uh, Nantucket so Reds. You, I realize Nantucket Reds are a real thing, even before yes. Target did that. Like, yes, uh, heteronormative straight men do wear pink pants on a regular basis, yes, without that being questioned. Do they, did they do that in Salt Lake City, Utah, in the uh, mid nineties? No, no, they did not. Um, but there are other worlds out there, and they don't operate the same as the one that you're from. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean. Just listening to you, I feel like you're from another planet. So I, I get that a lot. Yeah, I mean, but you viewed us in the same <laughs> in the same lens. So, so you get what you got. Right. I mean that I to me that's part of the, the joy of the world or even as America as any place that's uh, at least theoretically has the door open to be a multi ethnic, multi whatever society is, is the richness and the beauty that different people bring. And, uh, I, don't know. I like it. Maybe I just have adult ADD and I have a short attention span. So I need lots of, <laughs> lots of interesting things in my environment to keep me humming. Only you know that. Well, what is, I'm not even sure. Cause I'm non-diagnosed but anyway. <laughs> what is your best Philly slash pen memory? Best Philly slash pen memory. Man. So a best pen memory would absolutely be the, the people that I met there, right? So you, you have this environment where it is somewhat exclusive, right? So it's not the yeah. same sort of exclusive as some other places. So it, it's, it's not Yale, it's not Princeton. It's not Harvard for several reasons and in several ways. Uh, but, but, but it still has history. It still has yeah. all sorts of tradition quality. But the, the best thing about that place were the, were the people I spent time with. The access to individuals that were just bright, that were energetic, that were trying to do things. I won't even say aspirational, but people that, that had some skill and I, I was in education, right? So I, I got a, a master's degree in higher education administration. So I studied college and college. So these, uh, but played on Wharton's rugby team. So an NBA rugby team. So the, these are different worlds, but uh, all of these people that were open and friendly and energetic and bright, like spending a time in that kind of environment where that many people are pushed together was just exciting and rewarding. They were, they were great folks. So, so that, that was how I would describe Penn. And that might not be the clothing or a sartorial story you're looking no, for. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not fishing. I just, I just wanted to know. Um, but then also the most Philly story. <laughs> oh, and, and I Penn, say this. Penn, for the listeners, Penn is right beside the hood. So when he said it's not like Harvard or Yale, that's part of the reason. Because those places, they're their own fiefdoms physically. I mean, and Yale will try and tell you that New Haven has its dark, rough side. Well, they do have projects. I mean, but, sure they do. But it, the scale is, is significantly the scale is different. different. The projects right? are real. But 
Your yeah. campus is right beside the hood. No, Philadelphia itself has the highest population of poverty. So you're talking about the, the largest geography and populace living in poverty in the United States. Right. So you can talk about comparative wealth. You can talk about all sorts of things, but there's just a swath where so many people are just not doing okay for all sorts of reasons. Um, and that, that's kind of, when I say a favorite story, it, it's something you can kind of laugh at, but is also tragic. Um, but that I remember an Easter morning where I was driving to church and I was driving a little bit earlier than my family because I had some responsibilities at church. So I'm driving at like six o'clock on a Sunday morning and I'm coming up Broad Street into North Philly. And so mm -hmm. North Philly is not a, a fancy part of town by any means. Like it, it's legitimately rough. Yeah. But so I'm driving. If you've ever been in one of those kind of neighborhoods on an early Sunday morning, it's a lot of recovery. Right. So mm. it, it's a lot of people that just don't have anywhere else to be ever or are kind of recovering from whatever they were up to the night before. And it was significant enough that six in the morning, you're still there. Um, so just driving up the street and, you know, you're just kind of checking stuff in your head. It's Easter. I'm going through my day. And as I'm driving by, I go, whoa, I think that person was naked. Right. Walking down the street. And you don't always double like make, take a second look if you see something you're not sure you want to see. And so I didn't, but it's weird that just in this blink of an eye, just the quick enough to recognize, Whoa, naked person. And then you just keep going. And it said in my head, Oh, I think I know that person. I think I know them. And like, how would I think I know somebody when it didn't even look all at register was naked. And then when I got to the church parking lot, there is a, there's a gate, right? So it takes a gate to get in there. And on the gate was hanging uh, a pair of pants and as I opened the gate, there's the rest of the clothing strewn through the parking lot. I'm like, oh, no, I do know this person. So I turned the car around and come back down. I was able to get to the person about the same time as the police showed up. Um, the person was, of course, had uh, had a mental breakdown at the time, like just wasn't doing okay. I was able to kind of navigate some space and try and get them a little bit of help. But that's Philadelphia, right? So when I talk about a place I love, like you've got – Within a mile of each other, within a number of blocks, you have Patrick Madras pants in the wild with no irony. And That's you've the got wild phrase is killing me. I just right? <laughs> I'm just saying these, these are not things that I anyway. I just see you on a public access channel or on PBS with your field glasses. Exactly. Going, the urban wasp of 2012. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, oh, but, but you've got this high and low. You've got people doing better than great, and you've got people doing worse than worse. And in a town that's as small as Philadelphia, geographically and in numbers and just in kind of networks, you can play in both worlds in, in that place. And not many places in America will give you access to both of those things. We're really isolated. We're really separated. Right. Most of the people that are doing great mostly only know other people that are doing great. And part of the challenge is that people who are doing really bad mostly only have access to other people who are also doing just as bad. And I'm not sure that's a, a healthy thing for society. Hmm. I'm going to throw a curveball here. <laughs> well, I've been throwing them, so it's only fair. Oh, 
I didn't realize you were, um, but I definitely am. So, All right. Uh, it's about to come across the plate. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to strike out, but I'll swing. Why does your wife consider prep trad old white people clothes? Because <laughs> she's an ATLian. Um. So, I might make the argument for her without of her being course, here. Of course, and, and she hear this, and you have to live there. No, well, but I say I'm going to go out on limb because she can argue for herself. She's more than capable of that. Um, but I will make the argument. I'll step out on my own and say I don't think she's wrong. So here, here is the one thing what? about I am. Yeah. I went to prep school. I know you did, but here's a comma, right? So here's. I'm going to put a comma on this yeah. so I can finish my statement. Is an Oxford right. comma? Um, it depends on how many other clauses I said before that comma. So I'm going to say this one is not quite an Oxford comma yet, Mr. Vampire Weekend, who are also some out of Columbia and New York. Anyway, uh, so you've got this trad prep Ivy clothing that originates and its home space are these bastions of elitism in America. And those are white spaces historically. Now what black people have done since the beginning is take that stuff that in their environment and put some flavor on it, right? Some, some swag, some style and do your thing. So that is not to say that any black person sporting that look is doing something inauthentic or shouldn't be doing that. But, but I'll, I will say, right. That, that that preppy look, that's a white thing. Now, plenty of black people do it and do it a different way. And if we're going to talk about all sorts of people have done things or when you get access to things, there's, there's something to be said for that. It's not to say you can't do it, but. It's ultimately an American thing. It's ultimately an American thing. Yeah, sure. But that's America has become that hodgepodge, right? It, it really is. Most of America that's not native has been brought from somewhere else. Uh, we don't always give credit to where it's come from and tr people try to claim ownership. And that's a whole other story of history. But yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> before I knew boat shoes were called boat shoes, because I didn't know they were called boat shoes. I just knew what they yes, looked like. Topsiders. Yeah. That's when I, I came home I with a pair of boat shoes when I was married, when I needed new shoes. And she goes, Oh, I thought you were going to buy some like work shoes. I didn't know you're buying white boy shoes. So I knew them as white boy shoes. She knew them as white boy shoes because she just knew them like that's who wore those was white boys. So, so, so much of what things get called and what they are in your head has to do with your, where your you're environment. from, right? From, from your environment and in her environment growing up, that's who wore them. That's what it was. And I don't know that she's wrong. That's not to say that black people can't wear white boy shoes. And generally when they do, they do their own thing with it. Maybe black people are wearing topsiders. Perchance. <laughs> No, factually. <laughs> no, no. That, that's, that's what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I, I just feel this Atlanta thing as a native New Yorker just confounds me. <laughs> so, moving on. Shall we Mr. proceed? Montgomery, why yes, is fashion important? Oh, I've argued with people about whether it is or not, and I'm going to say that it is important. Is it the most important thing in the world? No, absolutely not. But 
and, and this kind of goes with my ethos of dressing, right? So I don't, I don't have a uniform. I don't have a thing. I do have some likes and dislikes. I've made mistakes. I will continue to make them, but you got to wear something. Yeah. You got to wear something and what you put on needs to work for whatever it is that you're doing. But it's also going to become part of the environment. And when I say part of an environment, it means the objects and the things that are around you, the people that are around you, the things that the people around you are thinking, what you need them to think in order to be able to collaborate or work together, all this sort of stuff. So we're talking about fashion. Fashion is important because it is one of the major aspects that goes into how you interact with and the role that you play in any environment or task at hand. So I, I think there's some value in being intentional about what it is that you're saying, what it is that you're doing, or what your intentions are. What difference has fashion made in your life? Huge difference in so many different ways. I can tell you once that I, uh, <laughs> one time I was working a contract that involved going to the back of Walmart stores unannounced and inspecting fire doors and getting them signed off by a manager. And I was paid per job, right? So every time it gets like for each job, each inspection, you get paid this much money. So the amount of money I was making would be determined by how many of these visits and inspections I could do. And granted, you're unannounced. It was taking about a half an hour to get a manager. If you've ever gone to a Walmart and looked for a manager, it takes at least a half an hour. Until I put on a blazer and carried a clipboard. So by putting on a blazer, I'd walk into the back of a Walmart and ask for a manager and they'd show up in three minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's the utility of communicating how you look when you're showing up on a net. So fashion has made that sort of difference. Uh, fashion has made <laughs> made a difference when I was also wearing my uh, uh, button-down shirt and khaki pants and stumbled upon a punk rock festival in Mexico City that I didn't know was happening. And I love that music, that music. Like I, like I knew all the songs. I knew everything. And I've never felt more out of place. And I've, been a lot of, and I've been out of place in a lot of locations. But I just was not dressed right for a punk rock festival. Like, I've never, I am a pretty square, but man, I felt square in that moment. And I'm like, no, I know all these songs. I actually speak English. You're singing in English. I know these words. <laughs> right? Do you really know Fugazi? Do you really know the interrupters? Anyway, it, it, was, it was great. But but that's, that's the sort of difference uh, fashion can lead to your effectiveness, to your sense of belonging, your lack of belonging. Uh, it plays a role in all those things. What's the top fashion tip you would give the everyday man so he could look his best? Wear clothes that fit. I like Did I need to elaborate? No, I mean, you nailed it. So, Mr. Montgomery, what does always be fly mean to you? You know, you always ask that, and I can't, as me, hear that song, hear you ask that without thinking of that Offspring song where they say he's pretty fly for a white guy. Yeah, I remember. I've, I've always hated that song. I don't like Offspring. I love that line. Uh, but, uh... <laughs> I don't consider myself fly. No, so to be fly means to not just look good, but look good with an extra something. 
extra something. And just generally my, my look does not include an extra something. It's right. I like to do it right, but not an extra something. So I respect fly. I love when people are fly. I don't think that's part of who I am or what I choose to express, but fly is looking great with an extra something. Well said. All right. I think you should become a client. And that's a, <laughs> that's a shameless yet accurate plug. Shameless yet accurate plug. I am a horrible customer. Too, too many opinions and not enough money. I would love, <laughs> I, I would love to be able to afford your services. Uh, but I appreciate the value and I know that you're worth what you do. Well, Christmas is coming. <laughs> and I am getting fat. I'm trying to not be as fat, but that's something else. So doing a blog on menswear is cool. You get to share your experiences with other people. You get to do interviews, drawing, portraiture, photos, meet interesting people, and go to cool events, at least pre-COVID. You get to learn more about the culture. I am really flattered to have been invited and interviewed for Dallin Montgomery's blog. It's called Rohamas. B-R-O-H-A-M-M-A-S. Check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun and are down for another one. Please tell a friend who could use some fashion help about the podcast or share an episode with them directly. If you enjoy the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Lastly, if you constantly struggle putting an outfit together and are looking to turn that confusion into confidence, I'd love to talk about how we can improve your work. Check me out at nyfashiongeek.com and email me at reg at nyfashiongeek.com for a consultation. A special shout goes for our producer search and everyone down with the Fashion Geek Podcast. If you have a story suggestion, you can email me at podcast at nyfashiongeek.com or hit me up on the Insta at New York Fashion Geek. And remember, always be fly.